0: Walk the talk. It means nothing. If you talk and jabber all day long about how important resilience is and how important rest and good boundaries are. If you don't, if you're not willing to model with your behavior those things, it means almost silch. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's straightforward, right? We do not do what we're told, we do what we're shown. And so leaders have this incredible opportunity to model the, the behaviors that we want to see increased within, you know, the groups that we're part of.
1: Good morning everybody and welcome to the kitchen table. In this podcast we're in guest speakers to come talk anything leadership and the sole purpose of our conversation today is to learn new perspectives different experiences and individual philosophies from leaders around the country with one simple goal to grow more leaders. I'm your host Berlin Maza, and we do have a special guests with us today my friend and mentor firefighter Skylar Nagorski with formerly Renton Fire now with uh, Central Pierce Fire. Uh, good morning, Skylar. How are you this morning? How are you doing great yourself? Good, good. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for making this connection with our guest speaker, with Dr. Kira Masa. And uh, I'm very excited to talk uh, around the conversation of first responder resiliency, mental and behavioral health. Before we get going, Skylar, because I've known you for several years now, um, if you don't mind, you're now with Central Pierce Fire. Uh, yep. Talk to the listeners a little bit today
2: about your 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 exciting journey ahead of you. Yeah, well, I mean, initially it's funny, Berlin. Just uh, you taking care of me when I was at Renton. So, uh, been married to my wife for 11 years. She's kind of seen all the ups and downs, all the journeys, right, and understand that mentorship is is a two way street, needing to mentor others, but obviously first be mentored. And and running into you at Pump Academy while I was at Renton, and then staying there for five years this has obviously been a offline passion for both of us and just making that process and making that jump to be able to take another step in my career. I want to be a paramedic back down where I grew up. And again, this has just been a blast just hanging out with you the whole time and goofing off. And uh hopefully hopefully anyone that's listening, uh just best part about this process is just the transparency and just having authentic questions and and go ahead and and just plug in wherever you're at, however you can. If you got a passion I know one day I'd like to do what Dr. Mosseth is doing um, and just give back to our community. And hopefully, uh, even with my short talk with you, Kira, it's been just a wealth of knowledge. So really, really excited to get into this podcast. Um, Again, thank you again for this connection today.
1: And so today on the kitchen table, we do welcome Dr. Kira Maseth, who is a consultant, clinical psychologist, as well as an associate teaching professor at uh, Seattle University she does work with first responder resiliency behavioral health and a whole lot more but with that I will just uh introduce dr masa today good morning how are you this morning good morning thanks for having me I'm happy to be here for sure thank you and uh, before we get going would you mind just sharing a little bit about what it is you do your you know your background family and anything you'd like to share before we get going sure
0: um I'm a clinician in private practice. So I have, um, I'm one of the partners at Snohomish Psychology Associates. We have offices in Everett and Edmonds, Snohomish County. And I've been at Seattle U for about 14 years now. Um, And I also sort of have a subspecialty in disaster response and disaster recovery preparation type of work, which has led me into a lot of the first responder world um, that I'm practicing in right now. So I have a couple different professional hats um, and I focus on resilience around preparedness and recovery from large and small-scale critical incidents really
1: thank you now I hear you spent some time back in Haiti in 2010 after the major earthquake that uh, devastated that region do you mind sharing a little bit about your experience down there
0: sure um my interest in or I should say work around disaster recovery really started after the great earthquake in Haiti in 2010. And one of my colleagues and I um, were part of a team that we referred to as Doctors Without Borders Rejects. We were all a group of professionals who wanted to do something and had specialty areas of skill. And um, we were invited. Um, That's one of the big things about not self-deploying to disasters. You want to be part of a team that has an invitation on the ground so that you're not um, depleting already uh, difficult resources in, in those disaster areas. So we had an invitation, And we pitched our tents on a soccer field at a school and we ran a clinic for a few weeks. And it became very clear in the context of that that um, the Haitian translators we were working with were incredibly able and willing to jump right in and provide disaster behavioral health, mental health support to their community. And so from that original trip came this idea that what we really need to be focused on is training people from within an affected community rather than coming in on an airplane or wherever from the outside, not part of the culture. Um, So we we focus on training folks from within to then become trainers and um, provide additional support to members of their own communities. So we took that model. It's called health support team. Um, We've trained tons of first responders in that model all over Washington and the, the United States really. And we've also then taken it to Jordan and worked with Palestinian and Syrian refugees, and most recently in southern Poland with Ukrainian refugees. So my my disaster um, lens is really about making sure to um, pass along and provide you know evidence based, good research oriented information to people who can put it in the hands of you know get it in the hands of the folks who can use it.
1: Oh, that's awesome! Train to chair programs are so vital for organizations of all industries. Uh, the fire service does a lot of train train trainer programs, but we see them mostly in the operations part of the job, you know, like fire ground tactics, EMS training, driver training and stuff like that. But we really don't do many train the trainers in the discipline of, you know, kind of like what you're saying. I mean, you went to Haiti, trained the citizens down there to build a community of resiliency. But we don't have any programs for first responder resiliency and behavioral health and mental health and stuff like that. I mean, we do have peer support teams, but we do need more. And I think that's what we're going to talk about here today. And uh, Skylar and I are excited to have this conversation. So on that, um, tell us about the first responder resilience and behavioral health course that you teach. Uh, you partner with King County Medic One. Isn't there a three-part
0: series going on right now? Yeah, that's that's in a partnership with Northeastern University out of that's Boston. They have a Seattle campus here. And they they've partner with King County, like you said, okay. um, lots of doctors all over the state. So we, we have participants in this. This is our second second go around. So I did one last fall and we're doing our second set right now.
1: Yeah. And what what is it, uh, can you share a little bit about what that, what class that is and what
0: it is that you guys go over and cover? Yeah, for sure. So it's, um, we start with the basics and go over some of the neuropsychology of what happens with, um, physiology and you know, how the brain processes stress over time, trauma, sometimes ongoing stressors, what that, physiological outcomes of that are, which most people are familiar with, but they might not recognize how the relationship plays out in all those things. Um, And the other thing is that there are often a lot of symptoms that people think maybe it's just them. They don't recognize how normative it is to have certain types of distress. Um, So we really focus on that at the beginning. Um, And then I I transition into communication. I teach de-escalation to help support people in crisis, but not from a not from a professional triage hat. You all know how to do that. You're already professionals at that. You do that all the time. This is about how to support a colleague in crisis, yep. how to support a member of your family in crisis, because sometimes when we're wearing a different hat, it throws us for a loop, right? You know how to handle a member of the public who's having a panic attack, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. yeah. be able to handle a, a colleague who's kind of having a little moment. So we talk about that. We talk about um, suicide risks. We talk about how to... Directly and kindly ask people directly if they're considering hurting themselves. We don't beat around the bush. One of the biggest things with behavioral health, especially for first responders, is that it doesn't do anybody any favors to not call spade a spade. I do not dance around the issue. Yeah. <laughs> Let's call it yeah. out. Let's get yeah. people to talk about this. So we covered lots of different things, but that's um, those are the two main first components. Talk about burnout and compassion fatigue. Yeah. We talked about coping plans, how to, d- how to create one
2: that actually works. Yeah. Prag- pragmatic. Stuff yeah. Like yeah uh, act- actionable steps.
1: Yeah. And a quick question I have on that, you know, I'm on our department peer support team, but i want to be honest, you know, upfront, you know, I'm not very, let's just say active. I I, I'm not, I haven't been, I need to be better about obtaining the tools and resources to be a better peer support, both for my peers, but for myself as well. Um as far as the class, this specific class and others that you've been a part of, how, engaged are the participants. And what I mean by that is behavioral health and mental health is something that, you know, it it can be scary. It could be, you know, it's not like, you know, another topic in the fire service. Oh, let's go throw a ladder and pull a hose. Let's go. It's all good. It's easy. This is something that, you know, people, you know, might want to learn about, but they don't want to open up about, or it's hard to have a conversation with somebody else. And, you know, in regarding, you know, their mental behavioral health as it stands or so I guess the question I'm asking is how is it, is it a? Uh, you get people that will leave your class, your trainings, and practice what they learn.
0: I mean, I hope so. The feedback from the first session that we did it, um, has been positive in that direction. Okay. Uh, people sharing examples of how they have used some of this stuff in real life, um, ways that they've applied it. So, you, you know, you always hope. But the bottom line for a class like this is that people don't do it unless they want to. Like, you don't sign up for nine hours of this kind of work unless you're interested in it, either personally yeah. or professionally. So yeah. the self-selection involved, it's not a mandatory thing.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, People want to be there, they want to be there for whatever reasons. And yeah. so that I've found that the level of engagement is actually pretty high.
2: Oh, good. Yeah, good, yeah. And then, Kira, that's something I'd like to touch on later as we, we go through this is how you gave me that epiphany that a lot of first responders, but specifically firefighters, Uh, we have a tendency to be uh, more problem solvers when I initially came in with the expectation that we're sympathizers and empathizers, you know, and neither side is bad, but I'd love if we can touch on that, especially in your communications portion. Yeah,
0: I mean, one of the biggest issues, like challenges that I have um, as a clinical psychologist in training the lay people in the community, responders, whatever the case may be, is that most Most places in the world, actually, and most types of um, recovery orientations are around fixing things, problem solving. What what are the solutions to these issues? But when it comes to behavioral health, you can't actually do that, right? You can't. You're not going to fix a longer term crisis that someone's experiencing by saying do A, B, C. Like that. That's it's not that simple, and it's not really effective. So, um, getting out of the mindset of triage and fixing and problem solving is really a huge challenge when it comes to training. Um, non-clinical folks and some of these, these issues.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are firefighters, right? A lot of our listeners here are firefighters and first responders and being that, you know, we are in the uh, the problem solving mode all the time. What can you suggest as a way for us to, to not necessarily be in that, how do I fix mode right now, right here? Um, But then also, but let's take a step back and really understand and learn not just the importance, but those coping strategies and, and all that.
0: Well, there's two things. Number one is depending on your relationship with the person that you're supporting, right? If this is a colleague or a family member, um, you're probably not going to say something like this to a member of the public, but you may. Um, it's it's perfectly appropriate to ask directly um, about, hey, do you want to, do you want me to just listen or do you want me to offer some suggestions? I um, yeah, also re- recommend people trying this in their personal lives. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: you know, yeah. No offense, guys, yeah. but yeah might not be the the most likely to just sit and listen rather than trying to jump in and fix, right? So yeah, yeah. it's okay to ask, and I would recommend asking directly. But the other thing that's a little bit more subtle, if you're not sure if you should be listening versus problem solving, what yeah. you want to be listening for is what I call the yeah buts. Yeah, but and that's, okay. that's um, yeah, why don't you do that? Yeah, but I don't think I have time for that. Or have you ever considered trying, yeah, but, you know, that, I don't know that that would really work for my situation. And you're getting back from the person, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And that's that's your indicator. You should be just listening more and trying uh, to understand uh, deeply uh, uh, rather than fixing okay. because okay. they're pushing back against it.
2: Oh, I love that. Got it. it's, I love that. It's, it's, it's almost that uh, self-protection mechanism, you know, yeah. as they're just processing working through it. Yeah. So, Kira, I'd, I'd like to jump right into it. Um, for you. It's a little long question, but in, in an ideal world, how are the various aspects of department peer support systems utilized?
0: Um, it varies dramatically by department. <laughs> so lots of departments have them now. I mean, it wasn't even a thing 15 years ago. Um, so it's it's amazing how quickly something like this has caught on, which I think is great. But, um, you know, it's interesting that we're here talking about leadership because what it really comes down to is the priority from leadership around around these kinds of things, whether it's peer support or behavioral health in general. If leadership says this is important, this is what we're going to spend time and money and energy on, then that's what happens.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And if they, if it's lip service, then, you know, it, it doesn't. Yeah. So peer support is growing exponentially, not just in fire service, but law enforcement too, which is great. Um, it's really important and it is helpful, but um, it's not equal in all departments. There's not the same type of attention and devotion of resources and time. So we have work to do. Um, but it's definitely headed in the right direction.
2: Yeah. yeah. And and would you say, should it be a tier based system essentially, or is it more on the individual going through, you know, whether it's a hard call or it's stuff at home, is it their job to reach out? It, where, where does the catalyst start? And then how would you build out, you well, know, a, a system that eventually reaches out to you?
0: Yeah. Scalable. Um, the catalyst needs to be multifaceted. So it can't just be one source that it comes from. You can't rely on the person who's hurting or struggling to reach out and ask for help. You have to have systems in place where people check on each other, as well as the opportunity for people advocating for their own support. So it's not just one process. At least my opinion would be that it shouldn't be. Um, And then In terms of the tiers that you mentioned, you know, one of the cool things about this kind of podcast and other like just getting information out that people can use on a regular basis is that if you think about the population as a pyramid, um, when you're looking at the bottom, the biggest, biggest section of the pyramid in tiers, the more people you can teach to provide support for that bottom level where it's less acute, but maybe someone could benefit from some support or from a coping skill, right? You're going you're gonna to do the most good at that larger population level. And the higher you get up the pyramid, up the triangle, the more professional support someone is going to need. So at the very top is really acute, um, maybe someone who's actively suicidal or really, really having some significant issues. And they're going to need professional resources and support. But the more people we can train up at the bottom, you can prevent the, ne- the necessity of moving up the pyramid to a certain extent.
2: So, hence the you know the health support team and the HSTs, you know. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So let's get it out there yeah. for people to use. Yeah. No, and I, I I love all this stuff
1: because you go like you mentioned you go back fifteen, not even 15 10 to fifteen years. uh right. the, you know the culture of fire service is if you're struggling with something, whether it be behavioral health, mental health, whatever Maybe it may be. Have a beer. Yeah, exactly. Or you know, that's uh, you don't talk about it because you know you're weak yeah. if you if you do. And I think where we're the fire service and other, you know, I guess many industries are are getting out of that, you know, that stigma of it being you're weak if you, if you are. So I do love that there is there's a lot of work being done in this specific topic, but a lot of more work to be done. So other than, you know, for example, my department has a peer support team. We have an EAP for our, you know, our, you know, uh, medical benefits, but we don't have much else, right? What else can individuals do? Like, what can I do? Or what can you recommend organizations implement if you will to continue to make it a full force so we're not waiting 30 years before we've made a dent in behavioral health and that we're there sooner
0: yeah i mean i think that the the culture change around the stigma reduction is probably one of the biggest things that any person can do and what that what that looks like is you you know talk using the vocabulary Talking about behavioral health, talking yeah. about mental health, talking about substance use, not pretending it's not a thing, yeah. um, but actually being willing to broach the conversation. Yeah. And the way that looks, like, you know, wherever you are, right, in your unit is asking things, yeah. bringing up issues, asking questions to people, um, checking in with them, and being more overt about it um, so that it normalizes the whole thing.
3: Yeah,
0: And I, I think with younger generations of firefighters, at least from my the the level of knowledge I have around it is that as younger, younger folks come in, it's changing that already because there's a higher level of familiarity with it. But if you want to talk culture change, it's about familiarity and frequency, just bringing this stuff up and not being afraid of it.
2: That's a great point. Yeah. And and in your experience, Kira, and for you, Berlin, um, have you seen throughout your travels, at least in the Northwest geographically, we're having a huge swing. A lot of, a lot of our, I call them OGs are retiring. Yeah. And kind of the, the standard bearers, if you will, or the, the tone setters. And it seems like this is a prime time to start that healthy culture change. And, and like you said, just being overt about it and being, quite frankly, with this leadership podcast, being vulnerable. Yeah. I've, the people I've looked up to the most have been very plain and very direct from day one of Academy. And then meanwhile, they've been mentors throughout my entire career, almost because of that vulnerability and because of that overtness and checking in on me. Um, so in your experience, what is the biggest block for formal leaders to start that change
0: um, it's so fear-based responding like it's about, it's around if you're unfamiliar with something mm-hmm. um, or you have a personal there's two things it's just that you're unfamiliar with it so you want to avoid it because that's what humans do generally but also if if there's something about this topic of behavioral health in general that hits a little too close to home my experience has been with people that really, like in a sort of a loud way, really push back against these topics. It's the reason that they're doing that is because there's something happening for them, their family, or their personal situation where it's it's hitting close to home, um, and that's pretty that's pretty normal. That defensive sort of style, we all do that. Um, but you're right around the generational the generational opportunity here. We really are at a you know. There's a quote that says, um, "What is it? Something that we're around." You got to take advantage of a crisis. Like, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And coming out of this pandemic with all the changes that have happened, this is this is an opportunity to not let the crisis go to waste. Like, let's. Would you say
2: it's like a nice reset? It's the silver lining is it's a good reset. Let's use this time to to talk candidly and get in these groups. Okay. Well, well, one, you know, just on a personal note, I don't know if this is a good segue, but uh, potentially a time to kind of talk about what you're saying during your. your symptom side about burnout, compassion, fatigue, and moral injury. Um, Could you speak on that for a little bit? Yeah, sure. Those three things
0: are um, sort of the three legs of the stool when it comes to job stress. Burnout is by far the most common and widespread. It's just a function of um, too much energy going out and not enough coming back into you. And the net result is burnout, right? That's what you get when there's not enough um, time to recover mentally, physically, Uh, all emotionally, all the things. Um, so that's what you get with burnout. And then compassion fatigue is when you become so tired often. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can define it, but the way I define it is that it's when you become so tired and overwhelmed that you lose the capacity to empathize or care about what other people's experiences are. And so that's, it's it's a lot, it's a common issue with helping professions in general, healthcare providers in general, um, and teachers (laughs) for sure. Or you just you just can't you just can't bring yourself to care about another person's mm-hmm.
2: experience is, is that a sorry for interrupting but is that a natural process with just us being typic typically stereotypically more problem solvers anyway and uh, rather than that sympathizer or is it more unique than that?
0: Not 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 necessarily no. Compassion fatigue shows up when the need is so great and whatever your your professional or personal role is in meeting the need is becomes overwhelming to you. Like there's just too many people that need you, too many issues, and you just can't handle it all. Um, yeah. And that's the, the result. And then the third one there is moral injury. And that's um, it's a term that was originally used to describe a phenomenon that occurred in field medic situations in the military where um, doctors and surgeons were being required to, to perform you know surgery and whatnot on enemy soldiers and yep. do medical support for the enemy quote unquote. And so moral injury is the result of feeling like you, you're not doing what you should be doing with your job, or you can't do what you should be doing in your job in terms of capacity because of whatever reason. So moral injury is usually an outcome that comes from a external problem, that you don't have the budget, you don't have the staff, you don't have the resources of some kind to be able to actually do your job efficiently or effectively and it's feelings of anger and guilt and shame because you just can't do what you, what you want. And it
2: feels wrong. Yeah. And then, and then are there, so inside of these symptoms, you talk about the physiology and these, these, these physical responses, what would you say to the firefighter, law enforcement officer, even the veteran, even the teacher, like you brought up any industry, what's, what would you say is kind of the first step in any of these um, experiences for them? 100% Hundred
0: percent boundaries. We have a serious problem with boundaries, <laughs> and it's a work it's an American work culture issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there's lots of reasons and lots of good, valid reasons why people do so much overtime. I get it, mm-hmm. um, but and you're being asked all the time, right? Pick up shifts and do these things. And there's lots of options for this. But if people don't have boundaries around off time, recovery time, restorative time versus on work time, where energy is coming out of you. That's what starts, in in large part, what starts these cycles and keep, keeps it going. Exactly. Okay. So we all need to do a better job, and especially from a leadership perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, leaders can talk about boundaries all day long, but if you get an email from somebody at two thirty in the morning when they're not on shift, that's not like that's sending the wrong message. And so the behavior around boundaries really goes a long way to subvert these. You know, the things like burnout and moral injury and compassion. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, on this podcast, we talk all the time, like it's a leadership podcast and we ask our guest speaker to elaborate on, you know, upper leadership or whatever it is. But a lot of times it comes back to self accountability as well. Right. Right. So uh, a fire chief or an organization can have whatever policy or whatever in place to say, you know, you're not allowed to work a 72 or 96 hour shift because we all know the statistics, right? If, If you work a 48 hour shift, you're X amount more likely to experience, you know, whether it be mental, mental fatigue, you know, physical injury, whatever it may be. And it exponentially gets uh, it gets higher or more, you know. If you work a seventy-two hour shift, let alone when you talk about you know willingly take overtime, right? At some point, it's 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 accountability of self to say, you know, what? I'm not going to take overtime today. I am going to be intentional about you know my own you know I, mentally. I need the, the break. I need this and that. And so as we sit and talk about this, a lot of this is just self. We self inflict a lot of our mm-hmm. issues. And we need to keep ourselves in check. And so it's funny you mentioned the overtime piece because it is it, it is true. Sometimes when decisions are already made for us, we're better off. Like, right, a certain, uh, if we're not allowed to, you know, answer emails after 8 p.m., we'd all be a little bit better. If we're not allowed to work more than one overtime shift a week, we'd
2: all be a little bit better, you know, but so. Yeah, and then, Kira, you went back to that uh, pyramid while we were talking okay. and I have that jotted down and that, that tiered system, I use the word tiered system, but the pyramid, I think that would kind of, a lot of, like even our department or my prior department with Renton Regional, um, very healthy, I just I guess calling entrenched culture of peer support, very, very healthy. But once we get past our really healthy peer support team, yeah, we kind of don't know where to go from there. And it, it it's a reset system every time because we have formal leaders in new positions often because we're having a lot of people leave. And so it just seems that unfortunately, the person who's in that crisis or needs that help is almost a guinea pig every time.
0: Well, I mean, so there's two things, three things. One is that um, in order for the peer support bottom of the pyramid level to be as effective as possible, you really need to standardize what type of crisis intervention training people have. So everybody's doing the same kind of thing. So it's not just like Joe over here is trying this thing. And so, and you know, so-and-so is doing this thing. It's like, no, there's a, there's a specific set of, Um, skills. There's a specific set of interventions. It's a menu. It's like, if this is the issue, these are the options for how to manage the issue and everybody gets trained across the board. I I do think everybody, and this doesn't matter what profession you're in, everybody needs to be better at active listening because that is number one. Mm -hmm. Active listening is not problem solving and that's what most uh, behavioral health support can really come from. So that there's that. And then the second, second or third piece of this puzzle is, We really don't have enough culturally competent providers at the other levels. So that when the peer support team runs out of options and it's like, well, this is beyond my level of training or my comfort, you need to talk to somebody who's a professional, there just aren't enough, period. Um, It's something that some of my colleagues and I are trying to work out, talk about with each other about getting some more clinical options, like a responder-specific clinic It has nothing to do with fitness community evaluations. Like it's in a completely separate place. People feel safe and comfortable. Everybody's there for the same kind of reason, um, and it's to to get better, to be healthy. Period.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so yeah,
1: that's a no. Problem. I I mean, you're totally right. It's it sometimes it does end there, unfortunately. Right? Like, as far as a peer support member, or just I've always I, I've tried to adopt the, this mindset of you know you don't have to be a peer support member to be a peer support. Person, right? Like, it's not just up to just people on the team. Like, we all need to be trained, if you will. I'm talking to fire service specific to be peer support because we are there with our members 24 hours a day, sometimes 48 or 72 hours a day. But I think sometimes it does stop there. Like you said, like me as a peer support member, I'm there to provide X, Y, Z of the support that I can. But there's a point where I cannot, both legally and literally, you know, provide more. And then sometimes it just stops for that member. It's like, well, you need to, you know, whether see a counselor, see whatever it may be. But then a lot of time it's, it ends because individuals won't have, they won't have that courage or to take that next step. And you said there's not enough, you know, resources out there. What's a strategy to get people to just take that next step always and not just have it end. Cause let's just say out of hundred firefighters, you know, 90 of them, it ends there. You know, yeah. I'm struggling. I need help, but it ends. I'm not going to seek further help. And, but we need, we would like hundred of hundred people to, you know, not stop there if you will.
0: I mean, the first thing is to develop a very short list of culturally competent providers in the community. In the area, okay. You got to have your your go-to people. EAP is great, and sometimes those people are a part of that, but um, it also um, often is is very general, and they have a lot of generalists.
2: Experience that personally.
0: Yeah, and so um, having a short list of referrals, it's local, right? People that are in your area that understand the dynamics, you know, Eastern Washington, Western Washington, Southwest, the peninsula, like it's just different every place. And so having local folks that are also competent from that, the responder culture,
3: yeah. um,
0: that's the ideal combination that we want to be developing in terms of training.
2: Yeah. Of
0: course, um, providers.
2: Yeah. Is, is there any Kira? Would you say there's any benefit to us inviting our EAP providers into a peer support meeting? Where they can go through our SOPs, they can go through our flow charts, they can go through our day-to-day expectations. I mean, I know as providers, you're very busy, but would that be of any, if I were a department chief, would that be something you'd prioritize?
0: That'd be pretty cool. I don't know how many people would be able to take you up on that or would be willing to, but I think it'd be great. More information, right? More more transparency.
2: Yeah. More exposure. Yeah. And then, and then clear expectations between uh, you as a professional provider and us. So we know how to escalate appropriately, you know? So yeah. Where the line is. (laughs) Yeah. Well,
1: because this entire topic of discussion today is a hot topic, if you will, we're sitting here talking about first responder resiliency. We're talking about vulnerability. We're talking about, you know, getting outside your comfort zone to seek help when you need help. It's all a hot topic. But we want to take it even further. So, uh, doctor, is there a hot topic out there, something that, you know, either is controversial in your profession or as it relates to first responders when it comes to either leadership or this topic specifically on
0: first responder mental health? Um, The substance use issue is one that we can't afford to ignore substance use of whatever kind of substance we want to talk about, right. It always goes up after large scale disasters and the pandemic certainly is oh. not an exception to that. Okay. And it's always a bigger, not always bigger. I shouldn't say that it's always a significant issue in responder communities too. Um, and from a historical cultural place, like what I was mentioning earlier, right. We don't talk about it. We just go out and have a beer Yeah. and, yeah. and a, you
3: know, yeah.
0: and a, yeah. you're so right. So the substance use issues are really significant Um, and we can't just, we can't ignore them when we're talking about mental health in general. Um, and it's fine. It's, it's, it's a fine line. It's very nuanced. And when there's a, when someone has a problem versus when people are, you know, recreationally using drugs or alcohol or, you know, whatever as a coping mechanism. And just, you know, part of the challenge there is being willing to ask a friend, right? A colleague, like, Hey, are you doing okay with this? Like, have you considered cutting back a little bit or like those are really hard yeah. things to bring up. Conversations. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Have you,
1: have you seen a trend? What, what's
0: the trend now?
1: Obviously since the pandemic in early 2020, um, you know, we're obviously almost three full years later compared to 2021, 2022. And now that we're in 23 is the trend. Are we as a, as a community, as are we doing better now than we this time frame a year ago and two years ago?
0: Um, I don't know about 2023 I haven't seen that data but I do know that there were significant increases for adults in general across the, around the state um across 2020 and 2021. 2021 uh and then partway through 2022 I haven't seen the data for the end of 2022 okay so that's that's pretty consistent with these types of disaster cascade events yeah. um, just substances being so you know widely available and it's just what people do so I I can't give you anything more specific than that yeah. but I know, you know it's a make-
1: just wondering if that that peak had dropped at all, or we're still at the peak today.
0: No, I mean, it has plateaued a little bit, I, I will say that, but for certain substances. Like, we know the fentanyl yeah. issues, opioids has gone, it's continued to go up. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about alcohol, but I would suspect, in given the numbers that I have seen, that it has plateaued. Yeah. So it depends on what the substance is.
1: Well, and then, not, just even to add to all that, we're not, as we talk about substance, it's not even necessarily just substance. We're talking about the morale in industries and organizations all across the board since the pandemic. And, you know, you add on substance abuse, it just exponentially makes everything a lot worse now.
0: I mean, here's a rhetorical question that I would put out there for your audience is like how much time, especially in your off cycles, right? When you're not on shift, how much, how many hours, if you were to break it out like a pie, are you spending in um, restorative time, like doing things that are good for you versus escape and avoidance? Oh, I love that that question, like the escape, you know, drinking, I mean, it, 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 there's nothing wrong with video games, don't get me wrong, but there's oh, TikTok, Instagram, like whatever. There's so many things that we do that are um, sort of to disassociate or to escape or to avoid. And that is different than being intentional about restorative and recovery mm-hmm. time. Yeah. I'm just asking You're,
2: yourself. And then with, with your rhetorical question, I know my initial, if I'm being very vulnerable and transparent, one of my initial gut reactions is um, I've always been able to take any drink water, take some ibuprofen and move on. And, and it's a, it's a pride thing and and not necessarily an ego thing. Um, but I've always been competent. I've always been confident. I've had good leaders, good mentors around me that, that surround me. I don't need help. I'll be fine. And yeah. so Last when time. you ask that rhetorical question, uh, how does someone, when they ask themselves that question, know the, when, when they're kind of, you know, excuse the language, but they're bullshitting themselves a little bit because uh- yeah. What what are the what are the what are the orange flags? What are the red flags?
0: Well, I mean, if you're willing to ask, ask and answer that for yourself without sharing it with anybody else, you're going to know, like, yeah, I'm spending, you know, 90 percent of my off time escaping, try avoiding, like just not dealing with stuff once you, if you're willing to acknowledge that and have that insight in your own behavior, that's, at, at, that's the point at which the door opens for something different to happen. If you're still in denial that that's even an issue for you, then nothing's going to change there. So behavior change follows the insight. Yeah.
2: In yeah. And being I one. would say, and, and this is again, another question, this actually leads a perfect segue into coming down to what are the, that personal care plan you keep talking about all the time. Yeah. Um, you use the word HSTs. I, I kind of, transliterate that into our peer support teams. Again, that train the trainer concept. I almost feel like a step before that is once you said they're kind of sitting in the gym by themselves or they're sitting playing their video games or whatever, you know, they're coping. And, and that's, uh, that's just humanity when they ask themselves that rhetorical question and they kind of get that, you know, sixth sense that, yeah, yeah, I kind of got some orange, maybe some red flags going up. Uh, I would say even before the peer support team having their mentors in place and since this is a leadership podcast, are you more focused on the mental health side and getting people through peer support and hope, you know, hopefully they don't need to get escalated or do you have any advice for someone who can create that their own personal care plan and, and develop relationships prior to needing the help?
0: Yeah, it's not an either or. I mean, the the simple answer to your question is that it's both. And so it's going to be different for everybody. Some people might want to engage in an official peer support Process. Some people would really not (laughs) want to do that. And mentorship is valid. Leadership, anything like that, anything that's going to be helpful for you in a healthy way. And that actually that brings right brings us right into the active coping plan. Like your active coping plan is only going to work if it's relevant for you. Like, and and it's going to be different for everybody, right? So you shouldn't have anything on your coping plan that is something somebody else is telling you to put on there. Yoga or a journal, like if that. Those things are great for some people, but they don't work for everybody. So yeah, okay. your coping plan needs to have things that take five minutes, five hours, two hours, like all the ranges of time. If everything on your coping plan takes an hour, you're never going to use it. Yeah. And then the stuff that's on there is unique. It's individualized for you. And that right there, just doing those two things, the time frames and the uniqueness are going to increase the likelihood that you'll actually use it.
1: So real quick, doctor, non-negotiable item, if there was a one item out there, a non-negotiable, right? you in, in talking to a first responder, you giving advice to a client or an individual. if we're talking about managing our own stress, being high, less hypervigilant off duty, maintaining your own mental wellness, what's a non-negotiable item that you that is just it's a must.
0: Walk the talk. It means nothing. If you talk and jabber all day long about how important resilience is and how important rest and good boundaries are if you don't if you're not willing to model with your behavior, those things it means almost silch. Yeah. Wow. Being, yeah, it's I mean it's straightforward, right? We do not do what we're told; we do what we're shown. And so leaders have this incredible opportunity to model the, the behaviors that we want to see increased within, you know, the groups. Right.
1: That we're part of. So the rapid fire coffee top off is suggest an action item for each group to start doing today. Like literally, if they hear your podcast, doctor, today, and it's it's over, it's it's ended, and uh, this group of individuals have to start doing something now. So talk to the informal leader, that newer employee. What's something that they could do to grow as leaders, to help, you know, embrace, you know, the culture of, you know, a a first responder resiliency, improving mental health, keeping aware of themselves. What's something that they could start doing now early in their career to make sure they prioritize things like this?
0: Uh, Two things come to mind. Number one, at work, um, start getting into the practice of asking open-ended questions to your colleagues. Things like, how are you really doing today? Mm -hmm. What's new in your life? Not yes or no questions, open-ended questions as a way of practicing that sort of active listening process. That's number one. And then number two would be to start right at the beginning of your career with establishing boundaries, knowing what you'll say yes or no to and why, and practicing that as Um, a method.
1: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) perfect. (laughs) I love it. Um, Action item, time for uh, an emerging leader. These are the new... Formal leaders, if you will, aspiring company officers, lieutenants, captains, those are newly in those roles. What's one thing right now they could start doing to, again, grow as leaders to help foster, you know, a more welcoming environment to, to mental health?
0: It goes back to the, the walking the top thing. Be aware of your opportunities for social influence. Um, don't, like, it really, to all of those folks, I say, what an opportunity you have here yeah. to influence the fire service in a positive direction that's going to support more people Um, and to be overt with your opportunity. I
1: love it. Lastly, these are the chief officers, senior members of organizations, individuals that have been there 20, 30 years, chief decision makers of organizations. What's one thing that they can do to foster, you know, an improved environment around mental health and everything or anything that we've talked about today.
0: I would say, you called it vulnerability earlier, but I would call it something different. I would call it transparency. Um, And what I mean by that is you don't have to get into some discussion about your relationship with your mother, right? It doesn't have to be like big emotional vulnerability, but being more transparent and bringing transparency into workplace conversations around behavioral health, like, yeah, I'm not sleeping well. It's not about turning the the debrief into a therapy section. It's about having people in senior leadership be willing to step up and be more transparent around behavioral health issues like sleep like drinking you know it's like yeah i had if i had a few too many this week i got to watch that just the little nuanced phrases and ways of bringing this stuff up has an incredible influence on people yeah, so it's, and we know it works yeah
1: like so no, that's, that's
0: not my idea
1: <laughs> I, I i think it, it it does all work and if uh I think if if every employee uh, at whatever level that you just recommend to start taking the actions that you just said, I think immediately we're going to start seeing results and an improvement in, in with this mental health. This uh, it, you know make a dent in this um, yeah. stigma immediately, and that's why we have those actions. I think it's awesome. So I got, I guess I got to ask this question more off the books. Um, do you, doctor? Uh, do you do you see first responders? or in your in your as a consultant in your practice or no?
0: Um, I do. Um, I haven't taken any new clients in quite some time, um, just have so many different roles and things that I'm I'm up to these days. So my, my clinical practice personally is in a little bit of a, in this, in a, in a kind of a paused place. I'm not doing
2: anything
0: a lot active with that. I do have several clients that I still see, but not very many.
2: Yeah. I Um, think Kira would, would this be a good time to talk about your well uh, clinic? center that you you're like I you said it's more than a napkin idea now but i don't want you to give out any of your trademarks you know
0: i mean my i, I do have a good colleague um dr stacy chiquette she works with a lot of icac leo folks and we have talked in detail about this kind of wellness a wellness center for responders in general oh really and so okay. it's, it is beyond a napkin but it is not it, it hasn't happened yet and it would be around Creating a tra- training for a newly graduated master's level or doctoral level therapist that become culturally um, competent in response work.
2: So. Wow! And I oh, got a long road, but I'd like to be the first one there. So. <laughs>
1: yeah, not off the ground yet, so no no name attached to it as far as the okay. Wow,
0: she has a name. Stacy has a name for it. I just
1: okay. okay. All right. Well, that's uh, that's awesome. And uh, to be respectful of time, of course, Doctor, we end with a leadership challenge. And what the leadership challenge is is because the purpose of the podcast is to reach our listeners, help spread this pandemic, if you will, uh, as one of our previous guest speakers coined the term of a leadership pandemic in the fire service. Uh, we don't have enough leadership training. We don't have any intentional work behind ensuring that uh, this profession is 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 you know grows more leaders uh, intentionally, if you will. And so, with the leadership challenge, it's where we ask our guest speaker, if willing to call out or challenge uh, another individual. It could be in the same profession, a different profession, someone that, uh, you know, does leadership discussions, talks, or just anyone that wants to share a story or philosophy on their experiences over the years for us to here at the kitchen table for us to reach out to, to possibly do a future episode uh, with this individual. So is there someone out there that you believe would like to share an experience to come talk on a podcast? Yes. I think I can
0: come up with someone. Um, Jeff Hoagland. He's the guy. Um, he is a, a veteran and a firefighter and a PhD psychologist. Oh, retired from fight from the service. Uh, yep, ta- uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, okay. Yeah, Kira, you gave me his number. I reached out. There you go. So He's a smart knuckle dragger. So he, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for giving us someone that can get along with us. Yeah.
1: <laughs> with that, um, we we do appreciate all your time for spending with us. You know, doctor Day to really unpack a lot of this. Like I said, we there's so much to unpack. When we talk about first responder resiliency, behavioral health, mental health, I mean, the list goes on and what we could talk about. I know our listeners, including myself and Skylar, are going to resonate completely with this, but I'm going to throw it out there and say this. Is there any lasting thoughts that you would like listeners to either resonate with or just something that you just want them to hear as we talk about mental health? I would
0: say just that it's not a giant mountain to overcome it is we are we're at a point of huge opportunity for this and it starts by tiny little steps so each person can make a coping plan that's going to influence their mental and behavioral health that will give them capacity to support yeah. other people so it's these tiny little things that build off of each other yeah. and it's right there everybody yeah. can so
1: skylar negorski anything
2: to add before we officially close the episode of the kitchen table uh, yeah, Kira. Just thanks again. Uh, conversations offline, and obviously, this one—it's—it's it's near and dear to me in Berlin and a lot of individuals' hearts. You know, we can put all the fancy words we want out there, but it, at the end of the day, it's our brothers and our sisters, and we take—we take that pretty seriously. And and to make sure that they're prioritized, and like you said, to be overt and to start with ourselves. Uh, a lot of what you said resonated, but it's—it's it's because of the people I see. You know, thank you. Yeah,
0: oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me today.
1: Absolutely. And so. Uh... For all the listeners out there, thank you once again for tuning in to The Kitchen Table. We truly hope that you found this time valuable and that we've inspired you to take action, to lead, and to spread the leadership conversation as far as it'll take you. For now, be safe, be intentional, and stay curious.